Hello and welcome to the EMG Gold podcast. I'm your host, Spencer Gore, CEO of EMG Health. And today I'm joined by a guest I've long admired and I'm particularly excited about. It's one of the UK's leading figures in sports and performance, Dr. Steve Ingham. How are you, Steve? I'm really well. You okay, Spencer? I'm very well, thanks. Yeah, really good. Really looking forward to this. Thanks. Um, To give you listeners a bit of background, Steve Ingham is a leading performance scientist who has worked with uh, both the British Olympic Association and the English Institute of Sport. He was integral to the development of Britain into uh, an Olympic superpower and has provided support to champions such as Dame Jessica Ennis-Hill, Sir Steve Redgrave and Sir Matthew Pinson. Now he's the director and founder of Supporting Champions, his own performance consultancy, plus he's the author of the best-selling book, How to Support a Champion, The Art of Applying Science to to the Elite Athlete. His latest book is called The First Hurdle, a guide to searching, applying and interviewing for jobs in sports performance. He's an expert in cultivating the mindset it takes to succeed, and I'm very excited to talk to him today about how to improve performance in oneself and in others. Uh, again, welcome to the podcast, Steve. Let's talk about your job. It, it focuses on driving performance in others. Um, now, going back to you know, before you started all of this, were you particularly highly motivated and, and results driven from an early age, or is this something that's that's sort of grown into you? Do you think? <laughs> no, you, maybe. no, I wasn't, <laughs> and uh, I suppose it's a bit of a myth, actually, that that a lot of high-performing people, high-performance athletes and CEOs and so on are born that way. There is certainly some personal qualities entwined into our personalities that we we know can facilitate that high performance. But many of the things, the characteristics of, of a high performer, and, and especially at the, the really elite end, that, that tiny outlier end, Actually, they can be learned. So, no, I, I, um, I wasn't. I would say that probably the I didn't really start on this journey till I left school. I was, I was rubbish at school. Uh, <laughs> I wasn't interested at all. But I, if I look back, I was curious about yeah. stuff, and I, I had a curiosity where I could find myself immersed, fascinated in a particular topic and the the hours could go by or I'm reading about something or I'm I'm immersed in watching it and and interestingly as a physiologist and looking back it was probably um it was probably meant to be that I was interested in in biology I was inter- interested in the human body I was interested in uh in sport so those two together meant that I were I was really a bit lost quite early in my uh in my childhood and then uh, and then I found some direction I mean I credit and 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 often give a nod to a teacher that I met so so uh, here's the here's the dirty details I I left school with three GCSEs I I really I couldn't do anything with that so I had to go back and learn and do my GCSEs again I'd learned I met a teacher there called Colin Clegg who's still a mentor to me uh He's a a big, uh, a hugely influential author in the domain of biology and sport. Um, yeah, and he inspired me to learn. He was a real role model for me, and I just thought, ah, I want to know stuff like he does. I want to be able to talk 
as he does. I want to be able to influence people like him. And so that then set me on a bit of a path of, of focus. And, and from that moment on, I, I, really, I really got my head down. And, and do, do you think that was because of him specifically or because you suddenly found a subject that you were keen on? Because, you know, I speak to a lot of, of, of sort of high performance people in different in different areas. And, and one thing I, I'm sort of seeing more and more often is that they're quite obsessive people, but it's only when they find the right thing to be obsessed by or something that, that really sort of floats their boat, for want of a better expression, that they suddenly go into that area and become you know obsessed with that and become the want to be the that high performing high performing person in that area so uh, i'm intrigued to know is it you know is it, is it the outside influences or is it just that you found the right thing to to focus your attention on it's a good question i've never really thought of it in that way but i think probably my my sense is that i knew the general direction that it was going yeah. to be in physical education and and then only at a later date could I stretch my horizons to thinking I want to work with the best. But yeah. but back in the early 90s, it was the only option really available was that I could see and could visualize was being a PE teacher. So, yeah. right. so that's a general direction. Yeah. So, but, but then when, when I listened, so it's, uh, it definitely was not the, um, the specific lesson that Colin delivered. It yeah. wasn't about um, the influence of sports science on elite performance. Yeah. He was giving a, a lecture in a. We actually had to, we had to move rooms. We got kicked out of our lecture theatre, and so we're all sat round. And strangely, had these these chairs. They're all wrapped in in cling film type thing, and yeah. and we all had to unwrap these chairs. We all sat round in a bit of a circle, and he used the plastic that we'd torn off the the chairs to discuss and demonstrate the plant biology. So he's talking about phloem and xylem, the, the transportation within plants. And it's, I mean, I'm not particularly interested in that as a topic yeah. now, but I was transfixed by him and how he was describing it using metaphors, using emphasis. The, yeah. We asked him a question and, the, and he had the answer. And I thought, ooh, something's going on here. I, yeah. I'm being moved by this. And so I became, I became sort of inspired to learn. I had to really catch up hard. And uh, one, <laughs> one particular story that probably propelled me more than anything was that I, I was doing my first year A-level studies and I went into C. Colin, knocked on the staff room door I was being a good student. I was going to ask for some advice. Could you explain this in a bit more detail? And, and we had a biology exam coming up. And so this would have been my mock exam, the one that I would have probably put down on a university application. And um, and I, I thought, I started writing a note and I, I put in, Colin, I just popped in to see you to explain whatever it was. And I looked to the side and there was a stack of exam papers and it said first year biology exam paper. And I was like, Hello. <laughs> Hello. And I thought, no, you can't do that. No, no. Exams are there to test your knowledge. And I went, yeah, I am. I'm going for it. And I, I ran out the room with this exam paper <laughs> stuffed in my bag. And yeah, I spent the next two weeks revising that paper. And, and then I got into the exam and I, and I went, yes, it is that exam. And I absolutely whooped it. And I yeah. went through it and I got all the questions down and, and I left the exam thinking, oh no, hang on a minute, I could get 
that won't look good. <laughs> I'm going to get properly rumbled. And and then I was genuinely panicking. And the results came out, and not surprising, I was top of the year. And I looked at the results, and I was like, I got 67%. And that's, <laughs> and that's with the questions. <laughs> and so, so I use this as an example, actually, because it, it's relevant, because I started then thinking, where's the other 33%? Yeah. What didn't I do? Was it something, the fact that the question had four points and I only put three down? Was it the fact that my arm got tired during the exam and I couldn't get all the stuff I wanted to down? And so started to think about exam performance in the same way as you would do sports performance. Yeah. So if you're thinking about 100 meters, you've got to be quick at the start. You've got to be, you've got to have a pick up to top speed and then you've got to hold on to that speed as long as you can at the end. That would be like the determinants of a 100 meter sprinter. But... Well, I wasn't thinking that way in terms of uh, sports before, in terms of exam performance. So then I started getting curious about my own performance. How can I up my performance? And that stood me in really good stead, not only for my studies, but then thinking about when I'm stood in front of champions, I've got a mindset that I know is going to yeah. be effective. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. Yeah, you've got to constantly be pushing for that. Yeah, you know, what's the next thing? Because if you if you're not moving forward, you're actually moving backwards because everyone else is moving forward. So I I, I love that. Yeah. You, you you talked about supporting the teams there. Um, yeah, you know, how do you do that? Can you explain the 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 core values of of, of performance science to us? Absolutely. So um, I've I've never been a university based researcher. Um, yeah. I I've never. I've never been in that situation where we're undertaking a grant application, we're undertaking a research program, and then we're writing it up and doing that for a living. Whilst I've got a publication record, that's always been under the banner of performance. And whilst I've got a publication record of a PhD, that that was a specialist area uh, yeah. around a particular topic. But but fundamentally, performance science is is using that knowledge. It, so I'm an end user of your publications, for example, yeah, and applying it to somebody with a need. So I'm yeah. an applied scientist. And, and part of that is objectively evaluating the knowledge base, uh, the insights that, that are there. Uh, but then starting to think, well, if, it's, if the, the information's not there, what have I got to draw upon? And, and then you start to descend into some first principles thinking about human biology, human psychology, uh, how we respond to stress and load, how we perform under pressure. And so then you start getting into not only the, the under applying knowledge that's, that's crystallized into publications and literature, you're then thinking about uh, something more fundamental about who we are as an organism and as a species. Uh, and, and then you start embracing the applied understanding and tacit and experiential knowledge that a coach who doesn't have a scientific background necessarily or an athlete has experienced every day. So the fundamental mistake that actually a lot of applied performance scientists make is that they turn up and they say, you should do it this way. You should do it that way. Yeah. And that's not very clever, particularly for people who've been very successful. The, the start point really should be you know, tell me about your world. Tell me about how you train. Tell me about how you achieve. Tell me about how you focus. Tell me about your strengths and weaknesses. And 
extract information from them that sets the context and the situational understanding that then you could find perhaps what the most important thing is you need to work on. And so I've my PhD, for example, if I had a specialist topic, it might might have been that. But that was on how quickly you switch on your oxygen uptake system in rowing. Yeah. Now that's only really useful for rowers. Yeah. <laughs> that's only really useful for for the start of the race for rowing. <laughs> um, so that's not terribly useful, but um, but ultimately, the I need to find out what's the most important thing that 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 athlete needs. And so a good example would be post London twenty twelve. Uh, we did a big review. We identified sleep as a particular area that could offer us gain, and yeah. invested in that air in that um, area. Some fantastic uh, scientists in, employed to go and research it, and that was a huge gain for us. But we didn't know anything about it at the start of that, and we but we then found out how to work make it work. Um, so it, it really does reject the scientist that comes in with a specialist topic and just goes on about that specialist topic that that every, if you've got a hammer, everything looks like a nail. Well, you've yeah. got to have a whole toolbox available if you want to make a difference to people who have a need. So a- another good example would be Jessica Ennis-Hill. Supported her from the age of 18 all the way to world and Olympic champion. And then she takes a year off. She has a baby and then she comes back. And now... I'm a pregnancy consultant, which I wasn't expecting in my career, <laughs> but I've got to go to that space. And she sets us a whole new set of challenges that we've got to go and work out for her and help support her through that, um, which which in, in, in many ways actually was a, was perhaps more of an achievement than becoming the poster girl of the yeah. home games and achieving. She came back as a mum and as a mum first and became an Olympic medalist. I imagine that you know it, this is all great in theory, and and when you've got someone like you know, Jessica that you've worked with from the age of eighteen, and you've got that ongoing relationship, I guess it's 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 all well and good putting that into practice. But what's it like when you suddenly got to start working with someone like Sir Steve Redgrave that's already won, I think, was it four Olympic golds at the time? You know, how, how do you how do you work with someone like that and and build that relationship and and, and you know sort of start from scratch when they're already at that high level? Well, the proven technique that I found at 24 is that in advance of it, you spend three months pacing up and down, not sleeping, um, <laughs> and absolutely crapping yourself. So that that's the main technique that I think is, <laughs> if you've got any sense of who they are and what they've achieved, yeah. Steve was totemic, uh, Olympic champion, legendary, highly focused, uh, not just not just Steve, but Matt and Jürgen Grobler, who, were, who was guiding yeah. them through the 90s. So I knew them. I, I had watched them as a fan and and admired them and read about them, and and so for me it was wholly intimidating. And I got the job working with them, uh, the national team, based on based on my experience of working with the Worcester rowing team. <laughs> the Worcester. <laughs> Yeah, they they were lovely people, but they were not yeah. high performance. Um, that they, they they got fourth when previously they got tenth, and yeah. in a competition, and and everyone thought that was great. And and um, so I 
I could not, <laughs> I could not rock up and go. You know, want to listen to me because of yeah. the Worcester, the Worcester achievements. <laughs> um, and so, so going down to meet with Steve, um, it is not not the least the fact that he's a good. Well, he's about he's six foot four. I'm five foot nine at a stretch. So. <laughs> Um, I'm, I'm trying to stand up tall and just surrounded by giants that in itself is intimidating. He's got more deltoids than I've got uh, body weight. (laughs) And so I just, I just bowled over and I said, look, hi, I'm Steve. I'm your new physiologist thinking, um, I didn't trip over my words. We've got the same first name. What could go wrong? (laughs) And he just stared down at me and just said, are you going to make me go faster? just no interest in me as a, as a human <laughs> and um he, you know like crushing my fingers under a handshake yeah. are you going to go f- are you going to help me go faster those are the first words that you're going to come up with and i just i just had a huge rush of adrenaline and and in that moment you start thinking what have i got to offer why am i here what, what's yeah. the point in me and so very quickly, because I'd done a bit of research, because I, I had almost readied for this, I knew yeah. that all of these scientists turned up and tried to tell Steve what to do. Yeah. You know, citing journals. Uh, you should do it like this because, because these, these bunch of students have done this yeah. uh, in a study. And, and I just said, Look, I, don't, I don't know whether I can help you go faster, but I'd love to find out why you keep winning. And if I can do that, I'll, I'll tell, I'll tell you, I share that with you. And if along the way I can find anything that I think could, uh, could be an opportunity, I'll share that with you too. And he just looked down at me, grunted and then grabbed his oar and rode backwards. And, um, <laughs> and I got away with it. I think that was the, that was the key. And, and I was, yeah. I think that, that that was the start of a trusting relationship and, I spent time asking Steve, you know, about him and, and his experiences. And I said to him, for example, what, what do you think of performance science? What do you think of this sports science stuff? And he said, you're the first scientist to ask me. Yeah. And I thought, shame on us as a profession that we, we just assume we know everything without actually talking to the people at, that we, we work with. Yeah. And I, after, after Steve had retired and I, I had a had a beer with him, and I said to him, "Why did you, why did you just just scare me that day yeah. in Henley in '98?" And he said, "It's just I just wanted to know that I could trust you, and for me that that's that I'm we're going to go on a bit of a journey. Are you going to make the the, the journey uh, arduous, or are you going to help accelerate me up the up the mountain?" And that's yeah. really what it's all about. You cannot work with people intimately. And go places that is challenging, unless you have got a trusting base. Completely agree. We 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 did a workshop on Friday, funnily enough, with our senior management team um, uh, for the day, uh, which was quite weird on Zoom. But you know, uh, uh, all based on the five dysfunctions of a team, uh, which is yeah. a, a, a book by uh, I forget who it's by now, but it's it's all Patrick about- Lencioni. Lynchonia, of course, yeah, it, and it's it's all built on the fact you, you've got to have trust for each other, and if you don't have that trust, it's not going to work. So I, I, th- I think that's not true of just supporting a champion. That's that's true of 
life in general, isn't it? So it's, it's interesting that it's the same principles apply no matter where you are. I think it is. But the, I mean, the interesting thing that we have learned over the years, and uh, maybe I'll give you the context in a moment, but the the lessons that you learn in high performance simply are that our ability to work with each other, how we respond under pressure, our character and attitude, they get tested. They get tested under those circumstances. And, and unless you have the very highest high performance behaviors, unless you are able to commit to a common goal, Unless you can devote time to develop, to building and nurturing empathy, trust, avoiding blame, that you create psychological safety, these characteristics that we know about that are consistent across high-performance environments, whether it's sport, military, space exploration, or even day-to-day, such as ambulance workers, air traffic control, these are, these are companies and associations that we've, we've researched and spent time with and seen that it's a common characteristic. That if you don't if you don't invest in them, mm-hmm. then then you you lower the level of performance, and in sport you don't win, uh, or you don't progress as much. In a lot of other industries, your life's your life could be in danger, yeah. and that's that's simply where high performance can lend itself as a lesson to be learned from, because perhaps in business and um, and in many any operations, perhaps in education too, you don't have the same pressure. You don't have yeah. that dire or absolute consequence or you know where you stand at the end of it. And so you, I think it's really glib of us to take all the lessons from high performance and say, look, you can apply them to your world. Da, 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 da. You can't. You've got you've to take them and adapt them and, yeah. and create the heat and intensity and the will and the leadership that underpins it to so say, we're going to do this and do this well. Why? Because we're going to try and disproportionately achieve as a group. Uh, and that in itself is the essence of, of creating performance. Yeah, totally agree. Uh, yeah, you're talking about how we support a champion and this high performance. Your, your first book was called How to Support a Champion. Um, now, in that, you quote the American entertainer Sam Levinson, um, who said, you, you must learn from the mistakes of others because you can't possibly live um, long enough to make them all yourself. Can you talk us through why you chose that and, and why it resonated with you particularly? Well, um, absolutely, and the you know I love the I love the quote because I think in many ways that that vulnerability that I has, has that I've shown over the years about I don't have the answers I don't know it all but I can share the lessons that I've had along the way the doubts that I've had and the experiences and how they've they've required me to be open to learning and adapting that I wanted to share that as a as a story from having journeyed with these high performers, but that other people could potentially benefit from. And so it'd be really easy for me to say, I've always been this high performer and I just I just turn up and work with these champions and they just feed off my awesome aura. <laughs> well, it's not that. It's not about that. It's a, it's about it's about learning and adapting along the journey. And part of that is learning from others. So the the big 
so I've mentioned Steve. I've mentioned uh, the big, the other big shift in our thinking over the the years in high performance was the award of the home games yeah. uh, in two thousand and five for twenty twelve, and and that that was a huge shift of just going woohoo, we got the games, and oh no, we've got the games, and yeah, and the the strangely though that we're not necessarily in exotic places like Beijing and Sydney and Athens. We're in Stratford in East London, and 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 well, that, that's not. It's not the location. It's the pressure that, yeah. that we put upon ourselves yeah. that we don't want to get it wrong. So that's one of the biggest lessons that I learned over the years was the 2008 games in Beijing, the one before London. We already knew that we were hosting, and it was drenched in success. Fourth on the medal table. Um, Britain came away matching the, the the target of the home games four years later. However, the feedback from coaches and athletes and performance directors was the team wasn't good enough. The support team that we put in place, the scientists that that we had in front of us weren't good enough. And I was like, well, what, what, what about? What do we need to teach? What new process? What new knowledge do we need to, to acquire? None of that. It was all about your behaviors, your actions, your team working. Yeah. And the, the feedback from one quite well-known performance director said that I'd, I'd take 10% less intellectual ability, mathematical, logical, all that technical stuff if I could just have 5% improvement in emotional intelligence and team working. Yeah. And we just went, you know what? We're not, we're, we haven't been good enough here. And so we got to go on this journey about finding out what it takes to create high performance teams and that we've got to learn this together. Um, and so that then started us off on this, this journey that, that really epitomized, I guess that the trajectory that we're now on in supporting wider businesses and other sports and other institutions around the world about taking that lesson in and, and applying it that the other people can learn from what we've, we've discovered about the characteristics of high performance teams, how you pull tight under pressure, how blame erodes trust, how, how effectively that, that if we we're not in, in support of each other on the journey, but holding each other to account, that we won't achieve as much. So that was the essence behind the, the quote that that ultimately yeah. we're going to fail along the way, but but we need to try and find out how we could learn and adapt to as we go. And, and and taking that to to sort of the relevant times, we're obviously doing this this over the call. We would normally do this in our office, but yeah, because of the pandemic that we've got at the moment, um, things are changing. Things have changed massively, and. You know, employees of, of the in in the healthcare sector are under immense pressure. So, how can we take what you know what sort of learnings you took from the Beijing Olympics to the London Olympics and the pressure you were under there? Can you transfer those skills um, into into w- workforces nowadays and 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 you know and try try to inspire the positivity in the face of adversity? Uh, you know, in this example, from that example. Yeah, I, I think there are uh, a number of different concepts that, that again get exposed in high performance environments, and I, that that people could start to apply and think differently. Um, so, the, the one thing that people have lost is that human contact and the social interaction yeah. that people have uh, experiencing. Many companies, and certainly some I've done talks for, 
um, run their whole system, have done previously virtually. So they are at a huge advantage of having the skill and the understanding of how it works around here. But not being able to go into the office, not being able to, to interact with people, not being able to spot somebody who's just gone quiet uh, or has taken themselves off uh, or that is particularly animated or pushy on a given day. And, and what's going on there? These are dynamics that you can't feel. So, so, so specifically there, uh, we're talking about the psychological norms. So how does it work around here? Uh, And so what, what are the dynamics and the rules that we're all required to live by. And we're a social species. We, we, when we go into a new group or a new team, when you start a job, for example, you come home the first day and you are so tired. Yeah. Uh, and all you've done is log on to a new email platform <laughs> and met a few people. That's it. And that, that, all of that, that heavy cognitive and subconscious load comes from our ability to tune into the social norms. So a psychological norm, and we do a lot do a lot of this sort of development work with companies about what is the norm that you're living by? What's the principles, the values of a society and a group? And now they've shifted and changed. And so actually it needs a reset, spending time working out how are we going to do this now virtually? Um, so that's, that's one. Yeah. Uh, secondly, that what we are going through now is a setback. It's a it's a huge environmental yeah. health setback, and and that we're under a crisis. So so things are down, and what we're looking for there is resilience in an organisation and in teams. So so resilience often gets thrown around. Uh, if you watch things like SAS programs, resilience is used as synonymously with toughness which it yeah. isn't necessarily. Resilience isn't just about digging in and just 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 nutting it out. It is about bouncing back after a setback. So resilience can be applied to a tennis ball. You, ba- you bounce it and it bounces back. Resilience in a team is how well you're, you are able to, to carve out the return to, to full form and full function. And that's where you are going to need adaptability. You're going to need to change the processes previously. Uh, You're going to need to make sure you're supporting people at a higher level, providing them with real clarity. So what's it now expected of me? So these are all subsets of exercises that you can go through as a team to actually actually bounce back. And the other concept, the last concept I'd highlight is is about how, how you're learning as you go. So an Olympic athlete about to take a gold medal does not stand on the start line and just go, oh, well, this is a surprise. And don't think, oh, who are all these people? Or what is it I've got to do again? Uh, or, or I'm under a bit of pressure. They're, they're ready to take that next step, but it's never a huge step. If the best indication that you become an Olympic champion is that you're world champion, so you've done something very similar before. The best yeah. indication, world champion, European champion. So you're taking, you're taking steps up the various different camps up a mountain. And so you become acclimatized to those levels. 
And you can only really do that by recognizing the achievements. And so what I would really encourage, and this is, might be a, a good takeaway for people to, to go and work with their teams on, is undertake some exercises that recognize the achievements and how people have adapted under these new circumstances. What new things have they learned about themselves? What things have they learned um, about work, about spending time with their family? What have they enjoyed doing? How have yeah. they, how have they uh, succeeded under uh, testing conditions? That is, is, a, is a bank of experience that they can recognize for the future. And I, I responded under this pressure and now look what I can do. Yeah. No, I like that. We, we, every quarter we sit down as a team and look at our successes and challenges from the last quarter. Um, so yeah, def- definitely agree with that. I, I, I think it's, um, it's quite an interesting concept there to look at it as a, as a setback, you know, as a, and, you know, if an athlete, I guess, gets injured halfway through their, their training you know, campaign for the Olympics or whatever, it's a setback and you've got to get over it. And I think there's a, with, with, with this, this pandemic at the moment, there's been a lot of, you know, th- it's not an injury, it's a, it's a fatality almost. And it's, yeah, things will change and feel, things will get back to some sort of normality. So it's been ready for that as well, isn't it? And you know, I, I think it's times like this where it's so good to have these sorts of conversations from people like for people like myself as a business owner. And, and you know, that comes comes on to the next question I was going to ask a little bit about having having a mentor and why do you think it's so important to have a mentor? Um, and if if people are out there looking for that sort of mentorship or, 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 or you know, um, you know, coaching. How do you how do you establish a relationship like that? And what's the best way about going about it? Because I've certainly you know, I did a post on this a little while ago about you know if you, if you want to if you want to get fit you go and get yourself a personal trainer in the gym. If, if you want to be you know physically if you want to be mentally fit in the workplace, people seem to be almost scared to ask for help. So how would you suggest people go about doing that? Yeah, I, mean, I I would always say that it's it's almost essential if you're aspiring to get caught out break yourself out of the rut that you're in yeah uh, if you're looking to go to the next level if you're looking to decide if you're at a crossroads whether that's in work or thinking about your next your next challenge in work um and i think the as the backdrop to this the, the there is likely to be an increased interest in coaching mentoring i think um and the the reason for that is that is that in the two after the two thousand and eight uh, financial crisis? So what we saw was that there was a whole series of changes in exercise behaviour, and the studies and around social psychology in this was that people were investing more in in undertaking premium level challenges like a half marathon or running 10Ks or running at all for the first time. Yeah. So Runner's World actually plotted the number of people running half marathons and it just went up exponentially and it coincided with the financial crash. Financial crash meant people losing jobs, people feeling like they don't know what's expected of them anymore, they're operating under uncertainty, and then people reaching to themselves. I'm going to invest in myself. I'm going to take time out. I'm going to improve my health and fitness. Um, I'm going to do something that de-stresses me, but I'm also yeah. going to challenge myself in a way that I can take responsibility for. I don't Because I, when I challenge myself in work and I produce good work, maybe I'm not getting the results or I don't know where I stand anymore. Yeah. So, 
So th- I think that that investment in so, so uh, there's <laughs> a slight slight tangent. London 2012 was all packaged and and sold under Inspire a Generation. We're going to inspire yeah. the children, and uh, it didn't. Not really. Not very much. Yeah. Take people's take people's uh, normal uh, rights and uh, away, or expect them to stay at home, but only allow them to do one exercise. Suddenly, everyone's going <laughs> to do exercise. Yeah. So we know how to get people active. In- <laughs> yeah. But I do think that people will want to invest in themselves. Um, and so the, a couple of distinctions. Um, firstly, that mentoring is is where you have somebody who is able to provide you with some guidance through questioning, through listening, but also takes the permission to to instruct or to advise. And that's slightly different from executive coaching, which is yeah. is probably less about domain specific expertise that, oh, if you're working in this, uh, you should do that. Uh, yeah. Or here's somebody you or here's a course you need to go and undertake. Executive coaching is a much purer guidance through enabling somebody's own self-resourcefulness to to come to the fore. So, and and that's something that we we provide to teams. And and if people are interested in in that as a support system, then then please do drop us a line because um, because we we see profound changes for people. Um, but it's because they get the best out of themselves. Yeah. Brilliant. I, 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 on, we're running out of time, so I'm, I'm going to move on to the last question, and it's um, you know, a, a question I'm intrigued to know the answer. Um, you, you, you must have worked with um, and, and had some incredible highs um, whilst working with the, the Olympic team um, over the various different Olympics that you've covered, and, and you've mentioned some of the names you've worked with there. What, what would you say is, is, is your proudest moment from all of that? Um, I've been a lucky boy in that sense, and um, and experienced some some quite remarkable moments, and witnessed it uh, myself in the stadium. And um, there are probably a couple that I just highlight that that are obvious and less obvious. Um, so the obvious ones are where you you've supported somebody to a success, and that's seeing. Steve Redgrave take his fifth gold medal um, in the Coxes Four with Matt Pinson who is third, James and and Tim getting their first. Though that moment where Britain was hanging on to, oh, were you any good at anything? And and pinning it on them and and seeing that moment sat sat next next to their wives. Actually, <laughs> that was yeah. nerve wracking in itself. And, <laughs> but supporting them and giving them the confidence. Actually, a couple of days, a, a, a day later, actually seeing the men's eight win, and yeah. they shouldn't have won. They yeah. should have been in the B final, sixth place or something. Um, but a remarkable team performance because Steve Redgrave and others should have won. And I, I wasn't there to help their performance go to a new level. It was just assuring the performance that they should have got. Yeah. Uh, and so then seeing perhaps one of the first indicators of of actually, if, we, if we're systematic, if we're holistic in our approach, we can get people to the top of the podium that shouldn't normally be there. And and seeing seeing Jess take that moment in London was... Yeah. Because I, I, I sort of caught the to- coattails of Steve Redgrave's career. But but Jess, I, I worked with her when she was a kid. And when she was a kid, you think, eh, yeah, she's all right. 
oh no, she's quite good. No, she's really <laughs> good. Uh, she's amazing. Uh, she's the face of the games. She's got yeah, to perform yeah. under that pressure. So seeing those sorts of moments, truly humbling. Um, so part of that is that actually I, I was in a stadium in Sydney uh, the night of, it was just the night of nights. It was the 25th of September. Jonathan Edwards won his gold medal in the triple jump. Yeah. Michael Johnson won his gold medal in the 400 meters. It's 110 meters hurdles final. And the, 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 whoever put the program together stacked it that night. Uh, Gabriella Zabo beat Sonia O'Sullivan in a mighty tussle. Gabri Salassi beat Paul Turgout in a fight down the, the finishing straight. And then Kathy Freeman yeah. uh, <laughs> just, just transfixed 112 and a half thousand people and united that many people together in a moment that really meant something for the, that country. And yeah. that was hugely humbling to watch. And then the the pure brilliance of someone like Usain Bolt in 2008 and just startling a performance. Um, so, I mean, I've witnessed many, but supported others. But, I, I, you know, I, I, get the, I get goosebumps talking about that, but I also get goosebumps thinking about actually taking this thinking to a broader audience. And I've met yeah. and worked with some people that I just go, you know what, you're as high performing as any of those champions because you are grafting, you are making things happen, you, you're you're committed to doing it better. And some CEOs around the world, some teams that are really putting in some amazing work and, and actually probably under greater physical and mental demand. Yeah. So that's just been as, as inspiring to, to take the thinking and seeing how people uh, have got an appetite for that and, and responding. Brilliant. Well, that, that's it's, it's fantastic. Thank you so much for your time and for joining us, Steve. Um, it's been Not an absolute all. pleasure to talk to you and to dive into the science behind the mindset and performance. And it's something that I personally am really fascinated about. Anyone that works at EMG will know how we give out our gold medals every morning for the high performers of the previous week. It's, it's something that we really love uh, trying to trying to work out and understand even more. So it's been fascinating for me today. Um, to all of our EMG Gold podcast listeners, uh, I hope you've had lots to take away from this and um, see you soon for another exciting interview. 